We have been looking at uh, the different aspects of, of that great chapter, and we saw how the Bible says that our infirmity is we don't know how to pray. And uh, we talked about how that the Bible lists three infirmities that we have, the other two being our own flesh, and then the fact that we forget what God has done for us. And those three, as I said earlier on, every problem we have, I guarantee you, can be traced back to one of those or multiples of those, however, however uh, you want to take it back and look at it. Now we have, uh, by this time, we have uh, laid out a complete biblical understanding as to what the Bible says about our infirmity of prayer. And I'm sure if you're honest with yourself and you've been coming through these lessons and following them and, uh, and uh, listening to them and maybe working them out in the tapes that you've been taking home, uh, you probably have found yourself somewhere in these lessons. And the purpose of lessons like this is to, that you might find yourself, that you might see where you're at, that you might understand in a better way, uh, you know, where your struggles are, that you better know how to work on it and how to fix it. And if you remember, you know, so far, just to give you a, a quick recap of where we've, we started and where we're at and the, the major points that we've talked about, we saw, first of all, the misconception about prayer. And really, that was really been more than the first lesson. It was basically all the way through everything, every lesson we've talked about the wrong ideas that people have about things. And again, we'll talk about those uh, again today. But that's, that's where we started. We talk about how that we as Christians have a, such a misconception about prayer. The second week we got in and we talked about how that God answers our prayers. And we saw, again, more misconceptions along with that. We saw the absolute importance of biblical principles. And and all through this, as I've tried to uh, uh, lay it out, I've, I've tried to just reinforce in your mind how absolutely crucial it is to understand biblical principles and how to apply them in your lives. In fact, you know, I've, I've talked about it for, 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 for years in every aspect of my ministry, but when we got into the book of Romans, it really came into focus how that the Bible principles are the only thing that we have that really keep us basically between the white lines. In fact... I thought, you know, as we close this lesson out this morning on prayer, before we get into the next section of Romans 8, I thought I'd take at least one week, maybe two, we'll see how it goes, and I talked about this Thursday night, that we would, next week we would just, I'd, I'd take different subjects that you and I struggle with, and we'd go through and I'd lay out and show you the basic concepts or the basic principles. Obviously, we can't deal with them all, but I just penned down last week, you know, as I was thinking about it, 30 or 40 principles that that we can just go from scenario to scenario to scenario, lay out the issue, and then show you the, some of the principles, and then basically, you know, we will not be able to explain them all the way we'd like to, but I thought, you know what, that's okay, because I'll lay them out, I'll show you what you have, I'll give you the, the ones that really help you focus on where you're, on some of the issues that you struggle with, and then, you know, you can bring them back on Thursday night, and we can talk about it on Thursday night Bible study, how that we, uh, how they all apply to your life and how they work. So we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to start probably do that next week for at least one week, maybe two. We'll just see how it goes. But uh, again, to reinforce the absolute and essential of biblical principles in your life. Then we talked about how to pray, and we talked about how that uh, the strange fire concept and getting the fire off the brazen altar and from the Old Testament and how that fits in and how absolutely important that concept is. I showed you and told you that the cross of Christ, when he died on the cross, his death, his suffering, his agony, 
is the reference point for you and for me as a child of God for everything we do because it puts everything in a proper perspective of where he's at. Then I told you there was four kinds of prayer. We talked about supplications where you ask God for what we think we, we need or our wants or our needs are. There's simply prayer where we talk with God, and I gave you examples of all these in the Bible. There's intercessory prayer, prayer where you're praying for somebody else. And then there's prayer of thanksgiving where we simply thank God for what He's done for us and what He's given us. Now today we're going to look at the verse that really pulls all this material together. It puts it into an understandable format, and that's how we, we need to do it today. We've talked about a lot of things. We need now to draw it all to a, to a head, draw it all to a point, and help you see how all of this concept of prayer falls into a biblical format that really works for you and for me. And we're going to look at one of the great verses today in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to pick it up again in verse 26, but we're going to really focus on verse 28. Let's read it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. And these are basically the verses that we've worked with all through these last four or five weeks. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now here's our verse for today, what we want. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now, Father, we thank You and praise You today for the Lord Jesus. We love You. Thank You for all that You've done for us. Thank You for how good You've been to us. And we just ask You today, Father, to open up the Word of God and give us those things that we need today. We love You. We thank You, Father, for loving us, even when, Father, many times we're so unlovable. But well, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for all of the things that you put into our lives. And we'll thank you now and praise you. Bless this day. Take it, Lord, and use this message to tie it all together in these good people's lives that they may have a better relationship with you and understand better what you're doing in their life. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. You remember last week I told you that trying to understand the concept of prayer trying to understand why things happen in your life the way that they do. We, we looked at two more principles. And we talked about the will of God and we talked about the purpose of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 basically says this. It says that everything in your life that comes in, the good things and the bad things, it says that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. There is a will of God in your life, and then there's a purpose of God in your life. Sometimes we call the purpose of God the plan of God. We now know from our past studies in the Bible that the will of God is a spiritual thing. It's you becoming more like Christ in everything that you do. The purpose of God comes through that will of God. As you work at being what God wants you to be, then God works His purpose through your life. That's how it, that's how it takes, takes care of itself. As you and I fulfill every day of our lives to be more like Christ. We studied this when we got into the book of Ezekiel a while back when we talked about walking in the Spirit, how you're moving into that river, that fast-flowing river that pictured the Holy Spirit of God. And pretty soon you got to the point where you were to your ankles, to your knees, to your loins, and we laid it all out spiritually. And then you got to the point where you were in over your head. And you simply went with the flow of where uh, the Holy Spirit of God wanted to take you. That is the greatest example anywhere in the Bible of exactly what God wants to do with you and me. He has a purpose for you. 
He saved you for a purpose. He wants your life from the point you think you get saved to the rapture of the church or when you go home to be with the Lord. He wants to have the freedom. He wants to have the freedom to put you into every scenario that He chooses to put you in. He wants to have the freedom with you to be able to do whatever He wants to do. That through uh, that you become more like Christ every day of your life. And then through that, He fulfills His purpose. He wants to put you into good scenarios. He wants to put you in some not-so-good scenarios. He wants to be able to trust you and rely on you that whatever situation you find yourself in, no matter how bad it may be, no matter how hard or tough it may be, He wants the liberty with you, ladies and gentlemen. He wants the liberty with me. He wants the freedom with me and with you. To be able to say about Bob Alexander or you, I, want to, I can put them in any scenario, in any place on planet earth, and I know that they will do for me what I want them to do. There's a great verse over here in uh, 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 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it's verse 11 and 12, and it's, it's, a, it's a principle, and you want to get this principle down if you don't have it already. It's a great principle. And it says in verse 11, it says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count, listen to me now, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name, here it comes, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that concept of that verse? You see that great principle there? God wants you to do one thing. God wants me to accomplish one thing with my life. This is the purpose that God has for me overall. You know what it is? It's for God to get glory and honor out of everything that I do. And God wants the freedom with you and me. God wants the ability. He wants the license. He wants the, the okay, the green light, so to speak. He wants the ability to put you and me into whatever scenario that He wants to put us in. He wants the freedom to, to use your life and my life however He chooses, that He drops you with whatever scenario, knowing that whatever scenario He puts you in, you and I will make sure He gets the honor and glory out of it, no matter what the cost. Now, you see how important it is now how to always keep the point of reference in our lives of Christ dying on the cross. He did that for you and for me. He paid that price for you and for me. And now He asked us to be a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And He wants to fulfill the purpose uh, of our lives. And that purpose is that God have the freedom to put you and I into some situations that, that He can get the honor and glory out of. The way that you and I get through those situations, the way you and I understand the purpose of God in our life, is to be tied into the will of God. The more you be like Christ, the more you will see things like Christ. The more you see things like Christ, the more you understand things the way Christ does. And the more you understand Christ, see things in Christ, and put it all together in your life, the more then you will 
identify every circumstance that you find yourself in, not from, oh, this is really bad or this is really good, not in the happenings of it, but understanding that God, through God's purpose, all things work together for good. Now, that's the approach that we're going to take today and try to put this in to some kind of perspective for you. I also told you uh, last week, I believe it was, uh, another incredible concept, and you should have this one down. This one should, would change your life if you apply it and you really take it to heart. And that is, I told you last week that, week that things happen in our lives for three reasons. It'll never be four. Sometimes, yes, it will be a combination of all three. Sometimes it'll be just simply one of the three. But I guarantee you, there'll never be a, you'll never be a, a fourth one. You know what the problem is with us? And it's, it's true of us in, in, entirely. We overcomplicate the things of God. We really do. That's what we do best. We live in a society that overcomplicates things. I mean, when you've got 16 TV sets up there with 28 hand controls, and everybody does something different, and then you go one and ties them all in, it won't be long before you, you know, and you can run everything in your house from a little hand pad. It's, it's so complicated. Everything we do, everything we do in this world only complicates what God intended to be simplified. And we do the same thing with God in the Bible. And I'm telling you, I want you to understand, the reason why we get so out of touch with reality and so struggle with so many things is because at the end of the day, it's simply this. We don't see the problems we go through or our relationship with God in that basic simplistic form. And I can guarantee you that when something comes into your world, and we talked about this last week, when something comes into your life, something comes into your world, and you are faced with it, or you struggle with it, or there's something that you're not sure of how this thing works, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that that is happening in your life and unfolding itself for one of three reasons. And it doesn't have to be complicated. Now, the first one we talked about is the fact that we're out of fellowship. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 tells us very clearly that if we're God's child, that He's going to be a good parent, and we step in the line, we're going to get whacked. He's going to gently bring us back into, 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 into fellowship with Him, and sometimes not so gently. But He's going to bring us back. So, and it doesn't take a rocket science to know when we're out of fellowship with God. We like to pretend it does, but the truth of the matter is, if you're saved here this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. And that Holy Spirit of God is, it, that Holy Spirit of God, uh, it pulls back from anything that's not biblically right and biblically correct. And that Holy Spirit of God will, it's like touching something hot. The moment you touch it, you know it's hot. You don't have to have somebody tell you, that's really hot. You don't have to have, you don't have to keep your finger on it for an hour and say, oh, boy, that's hot. You don't have to do that. You know the moment you touch it, there's an adverse reaction because what you touched was completely against what you enjoy in life. Well, Holy Spirit of God's the same way. He enjoys holiness, by the way. He enjoys peace, love, joy, and all the good things that go along with the fruit of the Spirit. And the moment you touch something that is not in line with that, He reacts. And you know it. You don't have to walk around saying, well, I wonder if I'm out of fellowship today. You know it. You may not want to admit it, 
You may try to do everything in yourself to, to get around it. You may alibi it, rationalize it, and everything that you want to do. But when it all comes down, when it's just you and God, you know you're wrong and you know you're out of fellowship. I mean, you can fool your wife, you can fool your husband, you can fool me, you can fool your friends, you can fool everybody in this world except God. Truth of the matter is you can't fool anybody who really knows how the thing works because if any man loved God, the same is known of him. I mean, it shows, but that's another message. Good message, oh, but it's another message. Second thing we talked about was the fact that sometimes we go through the things, and this is the second thing you want to look at because God has something that he wants you and I to grow through. In other words, God has something that He wants us to learn. There's a message in what we're going through for you and for me. And then the third thing we talked about is sometimes that we're going through something or something befalls us in our life and, and God has put us into a situation that He wants to get you and me to somebody else who has a clear need. And it's through this road of adversity that He, he lines us up. Sometimes it'll be, it'll be a combination. Sometimes you'll be out of fellowship with God and God will whack you, but as He's whacking you, He'll show you something. Sometimes you'll be out of fellowship with God and as He whacks you and He shows you something, He'll actually, once you get right with God, then put somebody else in your world. Sometimes it'll be a combination. But you know what? The first one is easy for everybody to discern and you don't have to think about it. Well, today we're going to examine this principle even more closely. And we're going to see basically the cause and the effect of the struggles that we face in life and how to intelligently pray our way through them. Now, most Christians that I've met are under the thought idea, and it's a, it's a, it's a charismatic teaching that goes along with their ph philosophy and theology. But most Christians follow the thought of a book that I read many, many years ago, which simply, with the title of it was, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Now, the idea on it is simply this, that the good things in life that happen to you and me or from God. And the bad things in life that happen from you and from me are the, from the devil. And that's basically the concept. And this book, uh, you know, I think forms the idea of basically where most people are at today because it permeates our, our, our thinking. And almost every sermon you hear, and certainly, as I said, through the charismatic church, it's so, it's so vibrantly preached and taught. And the book is very misleading and is a good example of how people uh, read something instead of the Bible and get a bad concept that only adds to the dilemma. And I've told you from time that we've started that the Bible is the book that corrects all the bad things in life. And that's why, and most people don't do this, that's why you shouldn't read all the other books out there and then decide what the Bible says. You ought to read what the Bible says first and then view all the other books through the Bible. But that's, that's just the way it should be. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and yet at the same time, I, I, I want to say this. I want to say this to you young Christians. There's so many dynamics to this. I want to say this to you young Christians. Uh, sometimes, you know, some of the things you go through when you first get plugged into the Bible or you first get saved, and you know how it works. You get plugged into the Bible, you get saved, and you leave church, and you really have that good feeling, and then, you know what, uh, when you get home, you find out your dog died, your cat died, your canary died, your truck blew up, and your house burned, burned down while you were gone, and, you know, your whole world comes crashing down. And the, some things happen in our lives along those areas simply because of they're the natural things. The devil wants to keep you and I from ever plugging into God. And he knows that when you're a young Christian, you're very vulnerable. And he knows that it's easy to discourage a young Christian 
and it's easy to take from them the joy that they have, and that's what he tries to do. The devil can't get your soul in hell. If he loses you when you get saved, then he's going to do double duty on you to make sure that, that you don't accomplish what God wants you to accomplish, even though you're going to go to heaven. That's just the way it works. I've seen the devil work on people, that Christians, for 20, 30 years, and finally the Christian has, has, gives up, but he's had 20, 30, or she's had 20 or 30 years of, of living in the world. And then the, the devil, after about 20, 30 years, the devil says, okay, go ahead and do what you've got to do for God now. I'm done with you. Problem is, by the time you get to that point, your body's wrecked, your mind's wrecked, your heart's wrecked, your morals are wrecked, everything about you has, is, is just tainted completely, and the devil just takes his hand off you and says, you can go now, go serve God, because you know why? He knows now you can't. You've ruined your life, you've ruined your body, you've ruined your mind, you've ruined your every, everything about you. There's, what is there left? You're just a walking around carcass. Some things happen just because of the fact that once you get saved, the devil's going to come after you. Now, what do you do in a time like that? Well, that's why God gave you a church. That's why God gave you a pastor. That's why God gave you Christian friends. God says, draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. You get into that thing and you, you, you let somebody help you. Sometimes, you know, we, when you first get right with God, you know, and I, I don't want you getting a misconception about this. You know, when you get right with God and you really try to do what's right, sometimes your world just comes apart. Sometimes it's because of the law of sowing and reaping, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Sometimes it's because, you know what, you've done things in your life, put your body in certain circumstances, and now that you're right with God, that's great, praise the Lord. But the, God doesn't give you a new liver if you ruined it with cirrhosis of the liver. God doesn't give you new lungs if you burned them out with cigarettes and lung cancer. He'll, he'll, he'll save you and He'll use you, but you know what? He's not going to go back in and fix all the things that you did to your temple when you were out doing your own thing. And He'll use you where you're at for the rest of the time you have, but you know what? By that time, most people, they just fall apart. They can't handle that kind of stuff. And that's why I want you to realize that uh, in, in many young Christians, some of the stuff that happens to you right after you make that decision to get saved or right after you make that decision to serve God, they happen because of the fact the devil wants to stop you. And you gotta, that's where, that's where you gotta, you, that's where you gotta, you gotta dig in. Now my point in what I just said is this. I don't care where you're at. If you're a young Christian today, and you, you, uh, you know, you made some mistakes in life, or you just got saved, and uh, you want to really get the thing going, you know what? Here's what my advice is to you. You don't necessarily have to go through the three things, because in your case, you're kind of excluded from that. You're, you're just now getting into this. And the devil's going to whack you. He's going to take what you already did. God's not going to hold you accountable for it. You got it right with God. But the consequences, the bad choices, are always going to be with you. Bible says that a guy in the Bible named Esau, Esau was a vain person. Esau looked at his birthright that God gave him. Now, in the Old Testament, the birthright was a great thing. It was the right by birth, and the firstborn had that birthright. It was a right by birth to get a double portion of everything that the father had, your own physical father. The birthright had with it not only a physical thing that you got the double portion of the Father's blessing, it also came with some spiritual things. It gave you the right to have the gift of prophecy from God. It also gave you the right to, to be in the line of Christ. It's an incredible thing to have, to have the birthright back in the Old Testament as the firstborn. Esau was a man that 
despises birthright. He's like a lot of God's people today. The Bible says that he was a man of the field back there in Genesis. Somebody want to raise your hand and tell me what a field's a picture of? Well, look at you already. What's a field a picture of? Don't say your backyard. What? The world. The world, that's right. He was a worldly man. He was a worldly man. Bible says he was a hairy man. So men think you're not, people think you're not a real man until you have hair in your chest. You've got to be a hairy man, see? Or a man with no hair, whatever the case. But anyway, but he looked at his birthright, and he said, what is this to me? I don't care about that. I don't care about the birthright. I don't care what God has for me. I'm a mighty hunter. I'm out here in the world. I'm running up and down in the field. What, what good is a birthright to me? And you know what he did? He sold his birthright. Jacob came along his brother, and he said, uh, I'll tell you what, you hungry? Oh, I'm about to starve to death. All right. I just made a nice big pot of chili. Venison chili. Esau said, man, I want some of that. Jake said, what do you give me for it? He says, what do you want? He said, I'll take your birthright. You know what he did? He sold his birthright for a bowl of Dixon's chili. He sold everything that God had for him for a mess of pottage. And don't sit there and tell me, well, he didn't know. He knew exactly what he had. He sold everything that God had for him for a mess of chili. And then the Bible says over in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, it says, For one morsel of bread sold his birthright, but afterwards, when he sought the blessing, in other words, he wanted it back. He was rejected, the Bible says, even though he sought it with tears. He wept to get back what God had for him. You know what? Too late. And that's what happens with a lot of God's people. And the lesson of Esau and Jacob is a great lesson for every young Christian because Esau, like so many of God's people today, looked so frivolously at what God had for them. And he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. And God has a purpose and God has a plan for you. And many of us, just like Esau, sell the things that God has for us for some very cheap things this world has to offer. My point is this. Wherever you're at, young Christian, whatever scenario and problems you find yourself in, dig in. Start giving God your life and start giving everything, including the dumb, bad things that we've done in the past, Whatever situation you're in, let him take charge. And let God now get the honor and glory out of even those things that you did that were wrong by simply starting to do what's right. Put a contrast in your life. Put a contrast from where you were to where you are. Let people see the way that you did things then and the way that you're doing things now. Forget about the fact that you screwed up a lot of things back here. God can even get the honor and glory out of that if you put such a contrast in your life. The Apostle Paul is a great example of that. We think Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived, and he was. We think of the Apostle Paul who was the man who God personally took to Mount Sinai and gave him the gospel of the church, and he was. 
But also at the same time, the Apostle Paul was the guy that before he was saved was persecuting and killing Christians because they wanted to believe in Christ and he was against everything that God wanted him to do. But one day on the road to Damascus, God called him and God dealt with him and he got it right and there was such a contrast in his life. Truth of the matter is, it was the contrast that gave him more credibility with God than anything else in his life when you really study it. Because everybody knew the way that he was. And now everybody saw that the way he was. Contrast is the greatest thing you can give God. It's a good thing. So don't worry about that you maybe struggled in the past. Don't worry about that you may be a young Christian and you're, you're dealing with some issues right now. Dig in. Let there be a contrast in your life and let God get the honor and glory out of the things that you did wrong by now doing the things that are right. And let the world see the difference. You know what the problem is? You know what the real danger is in that? You'll make that decision it'll last for two weeks and you'll be right back out into the world again. There's no contrast to it. Bad things happen to good people. Really? Now, this is the great principle. You want to get this principle down in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and it says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. There's the will of God in your life, being more like Christ. To them who are called according to His purpose. There's the plan of God in your life. You see how the Bible corrects all the bad things you read in books? You see how the Bible, if you just stick with the Bible as your definitive book, straightens out all the bad theology that's out there? I don't know how many people have read that book. Why do, I don't know how many people have heard guys on the radio or television or heard preach message. I've heard them say it, talking about how that the bad things in life are from the devil and the good. No, this verse says here that in reality, there are no bad things that happen to good people because all things work together for good. I don't know why people miss that. And we talked about the will of God being more like Christ, and that's true. But you wanted a, you want a really an insight into the will of God in your life? It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Here it comes, and this ties right in with it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. See that thing? Now, how do you give thanks in everything? If that's the will of God, and the will of God is being Christ-like, how in the world... Can giving thanks in all things be the will of God when the will of God is being like Christ? The only way you can give thanks in everything is to see everything from God's standpoint. See how it works? It's not hard. In fact, it's too simple. Now, the will of God in your life, and you've heard me say this before, it has a, it has, it has a God's will and God's, God's purpose. You've heard me talk a lot about defining verses. Next week, when we get into some of these principles, you're going to see that many of them are defining principles. And you hear me talk a lot about verses. In fact, in my Bible, I don't have them all. Uh, in time, I will, because as, as you show me on Thursday night when you ask a question or one-on-one -on -one and I see something or you bring something up, I'll mark them. I've got, probably got many of them marked in my Bible. But when I, when I find a verse that is a definitive verse, I'll mark it down. I'll put a little red square around it. And you've heard me talk about that, and we've seen examples of this, that there are definitive passages in the Bible. A passage is more than one verse. And I will mark those in the Bible. 
Uh, you've heard me talk about divinity verses, divinity passages, but also there are books in the Bible, complete books, that are definitive books. And we're going to talk about one of them today. And, uh, you know, in going through the trials of this life, God has not left us comfortless. He's dedicated one whole book to understanding the struggles that we go through in everything that we do. And, of course, it's, it's the book of Job. Now, I want you to turn out of Romans 8 or wherever you were there, and I want you to come over to the book of Job, because we're going to go through some of this stuff here together. And I want you to see this. I want to lay down a storyline for you. Job chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read the first 22 verses in chapter 1, and then we're going to go to chapter 2, and we're going to look at 10 verses there. Now, follow along with me here if you would. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Uh, the word eschewed there is an old English word. It means he stayed away from evil. He didn't have anything to do with evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 uh, 3, camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Kind of like Ben Cartwright and the Ponderosa. Remember that thing on TV? Well, this is the same. The Big Valley. Here it is. See? I told you. Everything you see in the world comes back to the Bible. And you know what, you know what Ponderosa and the Big Valley's theme was, wasn't you? Here are people that owned the whole world out there. And every episode, what was it? Something was threatening that. See? Where it comes from. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day. And Shannon called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Oh, the family gets along. That's quite a thing right there. <laughs> okay, let's move on now. <clears throat> and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sacrificed them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job did it. I think that's one of the greatest, one of the greatest statements about Job. And, and I don't know we read this. And I just need to point out a few of these things here, and we're not going to get into it today. But you want a great study? Find out why. Find out why he's offering sacrifices before there's any law that says you have to offer sacrifices. This guy's something. You talk about a guy that's crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, covered all the bases. Job did. Verse 6, now there was a day. Now, I like that because just as there came a day in Job's life, let me tell you something, there's going to come a day in your life. Yeah, I love the way the Bible puts these things out. Just like there was a day in Job's life, there's going to be a day in my life, going to be a day in your life. So let's, un, let's put this in a, at this point on, let's, let's change tactics now, and let's put this, let's take Job's name out and put your name in. And you read this now as your day. Because I guarantee you, we know that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The Bible says that he accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God. That's what he does right now. So it would be very safe to put your name or my name into here in Job's place because what on with Job probably goes on up in heaven only about you and me. It's just a sobering thought. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and eschew with evil? 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? And thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. Put forth thine hand now and touch him uh, and, take, and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabines fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands uh, and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, they slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only escaped to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, this is not a good day, by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I, am, I, I only am escaped uh, alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. All right, let's look at chapter 2 now. Got to get the perspective here. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the real principle here is this. Just like there was a day in your life when everything went bad, the next day probably ain't going to get much better. You want to remember that. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man, the upright man, one that feareth God, and escheweth evil, and still holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man will hath will he give for his life. But pour forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute. I can't get into all. I've passed over so many things here. If I did this chapter the way I want to, we'd be here till 6 o'clock tomorrow. But you want to mark in there, bone and flesh, bone and flesh, bone and flesh. That's a real key to something here. You won't find out what that key is today, but at some point maybe you will. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown. And he took him a pot shed, that's a piece of broken pottery, to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all this evil that was come upon him, they came, everyone from his own place. Now that's another great little thing there. You want to put that mark there in own place. 
You read through the Bible, you'll find that uh, somebody else, when they died, went to their own place. And uh, it kind of gives you an idea of what's going on here behind the scenes. We're going to get into some of it, but uh, this is a great counseling principle here, but we'll, we'll try to work through this. Uh, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shunite, and Zophar, the Nathanite, uh, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Well, let's, let's, let's look what we got here. Now, now this is this, here's the storyline. And we want to put this into some kind of practical uh, perspective so you can relate to it. But remember now, we got God's will working in your life and we got God's purpose working in your life. And now we definitely know that all things work together for good to them that are called God. So the book's out the window uh, where it says, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, now we're going to look at this thing and put it into some kind of perspective. Now, Job in seven days' time, I want, you to, I want you to note some things here. Really in one day. He goes through this ordeal for seven days. But Job in seven days' time loses what, first of all, what you and I will never lose our whole lifetime. Some of you, God forbid, may lose a child. Very few people will lose all of their family at one time. And I, yet I know that happens. But probably everybody who lost all their family at one time never got home and found out that everything they had financially is gone. In other words, my point is this. Job loses in one day what you and I will never lose in a lifetime, probably. I don't know of any person, and there may be some exception to the rule out there, that lost in a lifetime what Job lost in one day. That's pretty significant, I think. I mean, when you go back to that chapter in chapter 1 and look at the breakdown, he loses all of the physical things in life, basically in the order of their importance. The first thing in verse 14, he loses his ass and his oxen. Now, I don't know if you're keeping score or not, but the Bible says he had 500 she-asses. It says he has 500 yoke of oxen. Well, a yoke of oxen is two oxen to a yoke, so he's got 1,000 oxen. And then out of that, they killed his servants. He lost everything right there. In verse 16, it says the fire from God came down and killed the sheep and his servants. The Bible says he had 7,000 sheep. Now, this is the first thing I want to begin you to see here as we kind of weave this thought into here. And there's so many things to put in here, but we just got to stick with what we got to do. Did you notice how the, the person came in and said, the fire from God came down? You notice how that, that it, when something bad happens in your life, it always, it, always, it's, it always is God's fault? See that? How many times does somebody have some tragedy befall them? I've heard them say, why did God do this to me? Maybe God didn't do it at all. Maybe you did because you're not doing what's right with God. How many times have somebody said, oh, I lost my job today. What am I going to do? God, why are you doing this? God said, maybe I didn't do it. I gave you the job. Remember, you didn't have a job and I gave you a job and then you kept all of it and didn't give anything back to me. So I just took my job back. Thought you didn't want it after all. See how things work? People look at things, it's, it's always God's fault, isn't it? And I'll tell you the truth, if it isn't God's fault, then it's my fault. But it's always somebody else's fault when it comes to things like that. We're going to see how, this, how the devil works behind the scenes and how it's a great study in how the devil uses people in your life that are good, saved people, that maybe are your friends, maybe even your spouse, and they're, they're going to heaven. But because they're out of touch with the reality of God, the devil uses them in your point of need to help put you down a little bit farther. You better learn some things out of the book of Job. 
As far as I'm concerned, there's only one thing that Job teaches, and yet Job teaches about 16,443,000,000 things. As far as I'm concerned, it only teaches one thing. We'll get to it in a minute. But Job, in seven days' time, basically in two days, first day, second day, he loses what you and I will never lose in a whole lifetime. He loses all of his asses and his oxen and his servants. He loses his sheep and his servants. Then in verse 17, the camels get taken. And that's fine, he didn't need his cigarettes anyhow. But the camels get taken. 3,000 of them. And they killed his servants again. And if tragedy upon tragedy wasn't enough, he lost everything monetarily. He lost, he's, a, he's bankrupt. He, everything that he had, they didn't have money in a bank back then. They had their money in cattle, sheep, oxen, and, and all of those things. He's financially ruined. He loses everything that he had. And then tragedy upon tragedy in verse 18. And you got to see this. One guy comes running in and says, you just lost this. And by the time he's done, he's just taking a breath. And Job's saying, wow, that's tough. Another guy comes in and says, oh, you lost this. He says, oh, that's... It's a continuation. It's right one right after the other. He doesn't have a chance to process it. Hits him all at one time. Ever had something like that happen in your life? Ever have something... You talk about getting side... Side... uh, Blocked, not blocked... Blindsided. Side swiped. Yeah, talk about getting side swiped. Blindsided. Woo! And now while he's contemplating all this, tragedy of tragedies. You know what they always say after a fire on Channel 9 News, don't you? And I, I feel sorry for people around Christmas time, any time. Then a little 5 o'clock news, 6 o'clock news, somebody comes on and says, well, you know, uh, you know, this family down here, they lost their home. And the house is in smoking and it's 2 o'clock in the morning and the little kids are shivering. They got a blanket from them because they lost everything. And the woman says, and the man says, how many times have I heard this? Tragedy upon tragedy. Lost their house, didn't even get any pictures out. Lost everything. Probably lost their animals, their pets. Everything is gone. Nothing, and yet, what do they do? They try to pull themselves up, and I've seen them say it. You've heard them say it. We've read it. We've all witnessed it. They said, you know what? We can replace the house, but we still got our family here. We can rebuild with that. And I thought Job, I bet Job was thinking the same thing. I bet you Job, the first thought that came into his mind, he says, well, you know what? That's, we can replace that. That's okay. I still got my family. And no more did he get that out of his mouth than tragedy upon tragedy. Somebody comes in and said, Joe, everybody in your family's dead. Your kids, their wives, the daughters, your grandchildren, everybody, they were sitting over at your boy's house having a great time. And a great wind came down and tore the four corners off the house. They're all dead, Job. They're all dead. Well, that's just in one day. Then in chapter 2. Now, he had to be dealing with terrible grief and agony. And I would dare to say that right now, the loss of his financial assets pale in comparison to losing everybody in his family. He has gone through now something that you and I, in one day, ladies and gentlemen, one day, he has gone through in one day what probably you and I will never, never experience in a lifetime. 
And if that wasn't enough, not only is he dealing with the grief of a physical loss, but now the phone rings and it's the doctor's office. The medical report just came back and now he's been diagnosed with some absolutely terrible, horrendous disease that you could ever imagine. All in two days. Now I want you to see something here. And for me, I think this is the point of of what I'm trying to get across to you today. Job now has lost in two days. And he goes through the suspense for seven days. There's a reason for that, because the end of the seven days, we'll see it in a moment, uh, but uh, uh, seven is the number of perfection in the Bible, which means that God, God, which means that whatever you go, I'll just give you this now. It means, get this now, here's another principle. It means this, whatever you're going through will be in God's timing, and it'll be in God's perfect timing, and it'll be God's perfect solution and God's perfect timing because his went through in the number seven, and the number seven is the number of perfection. Then there's some perfecting in what you and I go through. Now, I jumped ahead there, but I was afraid I'd forget that because I didn't have that on my notes. God just put that play in from the bench. But I want you to stop and see something here. He loses in two days what you and I will never lose in a lifetime. Some of you may die of cancer. Some of you may die of, of, in a car wreck. Some of you may die tragically. Some of you may die 90 years old in bed. But I doubt very seriously if anybody in this room or anybody on planet Earth will ever have it all happen the way it happened to Job. Maybe some people got close, but probably never happened the same way that it did. Yet I want you to see, stop and see something here very clear. This is something very great. I don't think you probably, you probably have heard the story of Job a thousand times. I bet you it's one of those stories that you could ask anybody who Job was. Everybody knows the story of Job, like the story of David and Goliath, like the story of Noah. There are just certain things that you hear down through life, uh, you know, uh, and, and you just you know about it. You may not know about Abishag, you not, may not know about uh, uh, Billy Bob over here, <laughs> he's the guy that hung out at 7-Eleven, but you, you, know, you know certain people. But I bet you never thought and considered this in the way that I'm laying out in a practical application. And the thing that I want you to see after he went through all that he went through, do you realize that Job has no Bible? He don't have any Bible. Job's a contemporary of Abraham, Genesis chapter 19. There's no Bible in print. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible long after this. Do you have a Bible to go through what you go through? Yes, you do. Did he have one? No, he didn't have one. He didn't have one. He didn't have a Bible. I'll tell you something else. He didn't have a pastor. He didn't have somebody that he could draw spiritual strength from. He didn't have somebody in his time of calamity that he could call on the phone and say, hey, look, I'm going through something deep. I don't understand it. You know, uh, he, didn't have, he didn't have that. You have it. He didn't have a church. He didn't have a place where he went on Sunday and Thursday night and where he sat down and somebody laid out the Bible or took the time to say, now next week I'm going to give you 40 principles that you can apply. Now let me take four weeks and show you about prayer. Let me give you this. Let me do that. Let me bring you through on New Year's Eve and show you the Song of Solomon, how to have a great relationship with God. We've got a guy in our church who will put it in book for you. You don't have just to get the tape. Now you can take it home and study it. Child training? You want to make sure your kid doesn't go to hell? Okay, we got a program for you now. You can get it. Now you can even get it in print. He didn't have any of that. He didn't have that. 
He didn't have any of that. He didn't have any indwelling Holy Spirit of God. He had no relationship with the Holy Spirit of God like you have. There's no indwelling Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament. I'll tell you something else. He has no church radio. He has no Christian TV. No 700 Club. Imagine that. No books like you can go back there and get. Why, in Job's time, if somebody said, do you have a good book in the Bible? They'd say, what's the Bible? Not only is there no Bible, there's no books on the Bible. No Christian psychologist. No Christian therapist. No purpose-driven life to help him. No CDs. No videos. When his three friends show up, they don't even help. And there's the other part of that thing, how the devil uses it. You notice down here when his three friends show up? You know what? When you're sick or you're going through something, you know, I have to go, I have to go see people in the hospital sometimes who, who, who have, as far as I'm concerned and probably everybody else on planet Earth, they're in the hospital because of the fact that they haven't been doing right with God. I mean, I don't know if they figure it out, but to me, knowing their lives and knowing what they do and how they live their lives, and then they wind up in a hospital with some kind of disease or some kind of problem or some bad car wreck or their back broke or their legs broke or whatever the case may be, it's hard for me to go in in a situation where I know that that person is there because I'm a pastor, you see. And a pastor ought to be able to say whatever he needs to say to his people to help them get to where God wants them to be. And I really like that, and I really would like that, but you know as well as I do, in a perfect world, that may happen, but it doesn't happen in our life. And and you walk in there, and the guys or the gal, whatever, they're in some kind of thing, and the first thing you want to say, and I don't want to say it like I told you so, it's not that attitude. I I want to stop their agony. I want to stop their pain. They think that once the doctor puts some morphine in them and they get healed and get back out, their pain will stop. I know better than that. I know that their pain wasn't caused because of a car wreck. Their pain was caused because they have grieved the Holy Spirit of God so long and God's had enough. And the next stop may be the mortuary. But can you imagine bringing flowers and candy and saying, hey, if you don't get right this time, you're going to die. Can you walk in and say, had enough yet, Zach? You get it straight? You figured it out? Are you really as dumb as you look? What's God got to do to you, Zach? Is he got to kill you? That's not the best bedside manner when you're going to see somebody in the hospital. You know what? That's the message they need, oh. Can't do it. You got to go in and you say, well, how you doing? Are you doing okay? Oh, that's so bad. You want to go, rap, rap, rap. what's the matter with you? Want to pull him up by his hair and boom, 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 put him back down. Wake up! See what God's doing in your life. Don't you understand there's a purpose, there's a plan, there's a will, and all you're doing is your thing in life. Can't do it. Remember those seven things I told you a pastor has to do? Well, this one falls under the auspices of placate. Because you, you can't do it. Very few people, as you go through the ministry of life with, can you really be honest with when you need to be? Very few people do you ever cultivate the relationship with. Oh, and I know, people tell you all the time, well, you know what, if I'm ever not doing what's right, you tell me. Try that sometime. 
That's fine when everything is going well in your life, but when you are now out of fellowship and you don't want to get caught, you've changed your position. You just didn't tell me. And you don't have to tell me, just send me a postcard. I've changed, don't mention it. I'll get it. I'll get it. Nobody who's really in a lot of agony wants somebody coming in and saying, you know why you're going through what you're going through? Because you're not right with God. Now that's what his three friends did when they showed up. And his three friends are an interesting study. And they're a great interesting study in dealing with people and counseling. Their three friends, they have general truth. Everything they're saying is right. They're just not applying it because they don't have the understanding to Job's situation. See? And know what the devil does? Sometimes the devil will use good people who mean well in your life. Sometimes the devil will, you will find yourself in a scenario and the devil will use people in your world who, who love you, who care for you, but because they don't have a clue on what's going on, they get used not by God but by devil to add to your agony. Now, I hate to say this, but even his wife didn't help him out any. Help me that she was. She should have saved some of the she-asses and lost her. But it doesn't work that way. Did you ever notice his wife? Now, Job's lost everything that he's had. And I, if I know human nature the way that I know human nature, and I've been in this business for a while now, I would say that probably if Job is as who he thinks he is and says he is and he claims to be, I would say that his wife probably somewhere along the line is blaming him. I just get that air in all of this. It first came into play when somebody ran in and said, the fire of God, and they brought God into something that God didn't bring the fire. But there's a message in that. We'll get to this in a second. But here's his lovely wife. Oh, I don't know how lovely she is, but here's his wife. Remember back in chapter 2, verse, verse 5, and this is where this underlying thing all come together. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 5, when the devil and God were having a conversation, and the, and the devil said to God, hey, you know what? You reach your hand out and touch him, and he'll curse you to your face. Now his wife shows up down here, bless her little heart, in 2.9. And she says, curse God and I. wonder where she got that idea. wonder where that thought came from. I wonder who implanted that seed in her mind to tell that to her husband in the most precarious time of his life. You see how the devil works? The devil will work through people that you're friends, people that love you, because he wants to make sure that when he squashes you, he squashes you good. Now, there's a great lesson here, and this is as far as I'm concerned. This book has a lot in it. I have even got into the doctrinal side of Job. I even got in, in much to the inspirational or the historical. But as far as I'm concerned, it teaches one great truth. And it's a truth that I need to know and you need to fully understand that I need to fully understand. He had no Bible. He had no pastor. He had no church. He had no indwelling Holy Spirit. He had no friends. He had no wife that was going to help him out. He had no Christian radio. He had no TV. He had no books. He had no CDs. But all he had, ladies and gentlemen, was a relationship with God. And my point is this. God should be enough in your life. 
Because God wants to take you and put you in scenarios just like this. God wants, to, God wants to have the ability. He wants to have the license. He wants to have the okay from you. He wants to have the green light from you that he can lift you up, lift you up, lift you up, take you up, put you up, you up, you up, and put you anywhere in any scenario that you will stand for him and give God the honor and glory. Because God has a will. God has a purpose. You see, in America, we think that purpose is to get rich. In America, we think that purpose is to get everything we want. In America, we think it is to get the biggest and the best and the newest and to live way beyond our means. Job's a picture of a man who loses everything. He has nothing and he has nobody. He doesn't have one fingernail of what you and I have today. We have the Bible. You have a pastor. You have a good church. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God if you're saved. You do have Christian radio. You do have Christian TV. You can scratch off the 700 Club. You do have books. You do have all of the things that you can put to. And why is it that we, God, is not enough for us? Why is it? Why is it that God was enough for him when he had nothing, but we have everything that he didn't have, and God still is not enough. Now, you need to think that through this morning. Now, there's a number of things that I want you to see here today, and I want you to keep that last thought in mind. There's a number of things that we need to look at here in the light of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 that helps us figure out why things come into our lives and gives, puts you into a better perspective of how to deal with it. Now look at chapter 1 here, Job. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. It says there, and we talked about this, there was a day. And let me just say this. God wants there to be a day in your life. God wants to have a day of adversity in your life. Now, this is hard for American Christians. I understand it. I know what I'm saying. And maybe many of you young Christians, it's hard for you to grasp. And I don't want you to think you're going to go out here and you're going to get cancer tomorrow. I don't want you to think out here and God's going to put you into a head-on collision and put you into a paraplegic so you can walk around and, and, and give your testimony, show how people you can write letters with your nose. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God wants to have you where he can put you any place, any place at all. You know the thing that really bothers me about this story in my own personal life? I can't speak for you, but it really bothers me. Because I know how this scenario plays out up in heaven, and it's probably played out a hundred million times since it took place in Job chapter 1. You know what this thing shows me? The first thing it shows me that it wasn't the devil that brought Job's name up. It was God that brought Job's name up. God had confidence in Job. You know what God saw in Job? God saw in Job what I wish God could see in me. God saw in Job that here's a man that you can do whatever you want to. And at the end of the day, he'll stand up and he'll still love me. God, I wish he could say that about me. I, I, I wish, I wish, I wish for every one of you that God could say that about you. Do you see how small this makes us 
compared to what it says there? Do you get a grasp of that? how we all get this way? We all think you'll get in your Bible a little bit, you know, you lose, learn the ten spiritual laws, you know, and all this stuff, get an institute, and you work with some people, and we all think that we're coming to the point now where we can really, do you realize how small this makes us right here? How absolutely minute we stand up against a guy like Job. I wish to God, ladies and gentlemen, that God could bring my name up in every scenario and said, have you considered my servant Bob? And the devil says, yeah, he ain't much. And God says, yeah, you're right. Let's move on to somebody else. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It was God that brought Job's name up. It wasn't the devil. The devil didn't say, oh, what about Job? God says, have you considered my servant Job? I told you when we started, put your name in there. Take his out. Now, here's what really bothers me about this. God comes up there and he says, Hast thou considered my servant Job, a man that's upright, righteous, that shews evil? And you know what the devil comes back and says? Does Job fear God for not? You know, the devil's, devil's pretty arrogant. Did you, ever, did you see how, could you imagine anybody standing before the throne of God, arguing with God like that? But that's what he does right now. He's the accuser of the brethren. Now, there'll be a day when God will say some things and he won't have much to say back. But right now, that day isn't here. What, what the arrogancy of that? God goes up and he says, Have thou considered my servant Job? Oh, well, you got to get the whole scenario. Devil comes walking back there, you know, God sitting on the throne, walks into the throne room and kind of looking around and uh, says, Oh, things have changed a little bit since the last time I was here. God, God says, You got to, which, which, can I help you? Where you been? He said, oh, I've been walking down, up and down the earth, checking things out. God says, oh, really? Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, he ain't much. What do you mean he isn't much? He loves me? He says, but why shouldn't he love you? You made him the Ben Cartwright. Got 150,000 million acres down there. Look at all the asses he's got, the camels he's got. Look at all the horses he's got. Look at all the money he's got. Look at all this or God. Why wouldn't he love you? What's the matter? I mean, you think that he's going to turn his back on you when you've given him everything he wants? You know the thing that bothered me about that? Is when the devil wanted to get one up on God. He didn't go after Job's integrity. He didn't even go after Job's sinlessness. You know what he went after? He went after the attitude that Job really loved God with the right attitude of heart. That's rough. That's rough. It shows me the great plan behind this. That the real issue that the devil nails God on is do we really love God or we just give him lip service because all he's given us? Do we really love him down in our hearts or we just talk it? If the devil went before the throne of God this morning and brought your name up, could God say, Has thou considered you? Considered me? Would he have to pass us by because he knows that the, the devil would have him? I mean, you know what bothers me? The bothers me, the devil can't get God on sin. He can't get him on drinking. He can't get him going on, on, on anything that's wrong. He can't find one thing of God that he can nail him on. You know what really bothers me? The only thing the devil can nail God on is me. I don't like that. The only dirt that the devil can throw in God's face is me. 
when he stands before God and he lays me and you bare and says, why, why wouldn't he love you? Look what you've done for him. What's the matter? You think I was born yesterday, God? Hey, he, he loves you. You've given him everything. Why wouldn't he love you? Take what he's got and let's see what you got there. God had enough faith in Job to say, let's go for it. You want to roll the dice? Roll them. Oh, God, I hope in heaven when he brings my name up, God doesn't look down and say, yeah, you're right. Let's try somebody else. That bothers me. And if it doesn't bother you, you ought to check out your salvation. I think of how many times I must have let God down. How many times in my life when God, the devil, went into that throne room and wanted to make me the point of the object and wanted to and use me, my love, my dedication to, uh, to, to throw it in God's face that I'm, a, I'm somebody who gives God lip service, but deep down inside, my motive isn't pure. My heart's not really loving Him. I'm one of those ones who just talk the thing, but never walk the walk, never do it the way that it's supposed to be done. Hey, let me tell you, the real issue is not when all goes right, but the real issue is when all goes upside down in your life. That's the real challenge. That's the real test. You and me allowing the devil to get the victory over God Almighty by using my insincerity to throw it in God's face. Now that's a tremendous concept you better grasp today. Because if you think that the little, little intrusions into the throne room stopped in Job chapter 1 and 2, you're solely mistaken. The devil will try to take every child of God who gets saved, takes that precious salvation, and then tramples God's sacrifice under their feet and throw it in God's face every day. And you and I are glad about that. It doesn't, you had, it had to move you to your knees. It had to bring me to a brokenness. Now let me show you the second great concept. We're going to find this in chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 2, verse 6. In chapter 1, verse 12, and this is another great concept. God says to the devil, okay, you want to play this game? I'll put my man up against you. I know what he's made of. I know he can stand it. I know he's got legs of steel. You can take all that he has. That's the first deal, see. If you go down and take all the things that he has, God says, you can go ahead and take them. Devil says, all right, walks out that door. Just as he gets to the door of the throne room, God says, oh, by the way, you can't touch him. Devils looked around and snarled and said, okay. Second time he came back, the deal was now that he wanted to touch him. And in chapter 2, verse 6, God says, okay, go ahead and touch him this time. You didn't break him the first time. You know what? You won't break him the second time. Go ahead and touch his body now. Give him whatever loathsome disease you want to give him. My man will stand. He walks out that thing with a smile on his face, and just as he gets to that door, God says, oh, by the way, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. Now, I like that. You know why? 
You know what that tells me? That tells me whatever I'm going through, when God chooses for you and me to go through some adversity for God's purpose, that tells me that the devil cannot step one inch outside of what God says he can do. You know what? I can deal with that. I can deal with it when I know that it's by God. I can deal with it when I know that it's God's hand. I can deal with it when I know it's not the devil himself or not some man out there. I can deal with it and I can get through it because if I know that and I'm in God's hand, even the adversity that I go through is good because all things work together for good. That's why. One time back in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is my, one of my favorite stories. David sins against God by, by numbering the people. And that brought in an era of national pride. They were no longer trusting on God. They now were trusting in their great numbers. And God is surely displeased. And God comes down and he says, David, we're going to play a little game. We're going to play a little game. He says, up here, I have three doors. And you win a prize. You know that television show, Grant? We went behind door number one, but door number two. He said, I got three doors. Now, let me tell you, David. Behind these doors are how I'm going to punish you in Israel for what you did against me. Now, I'm going to tell you. Door number one is a great plague's going to come. And that plague going to kill a lot of people. Door number two now is going to be pestilence. And a bunch of bugs are going to come in and they're going to destroy everything you got. Door number three is I'm going to deliver you into the hands of your enemy nations. Now, David, big tough king, makes all the big decisions. Choose which way I'm going to whack you. I love it. David said, don't even have to pray about that one, Lord. You know what? You give me one or give me two. I don't want three. You know what David said? He says, I'll put myself, if I'm going to get whacked, then I'll put myself in the hands of God. Because he said, I'm never afraid what God does to me, but I am afraid what man would do to me. And he chose God. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. When I see that thing in Job, that great principle, that the God let the devil go so far, but God finally said, you can't touch him. And then he said, you can't kill him. The devil in the first scenario couldn't have touched him if he stayed up all night long and tried to do it. In the second scenario, he could have never killed him if he wanted to all through eternity. You know why? Because God set the limits. Because this was something that God had for Job to learn. God help us to learn it today. And the thing that just bothers me, I'm going to say it one more time, is God found him worthy. God said, you, I trust him. You want to put Job through it? You go ahead. You know what? I don't care what you say about him, what you do to him. I don't care how you lie about him. I don't care how you manipulate the circumstances against him. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you try to do to him. You know what I know about my man Job? At the end of the day, after all you've done to him, tried to do to him, after you maligned him and destroyed him and did everything in the world to try to ruin him, my man will still be standing. Oh, I love Job. Just wish I could be like him. Now here's the key to all of this. And boy, it's a great truth. God had something that he wants Job to learn 
God had some message that he wanted Job to have. And I might say on the same token, my friend, as we go through life, now that we better understand the concept of prayer and how it fits in, and now we understand the will of God and the purpose of God, I not want to say to you that, that, that the reason why some of you are probably not farther along spiritually than you are is because you are not willing to grow through the adversity that you have to go through to get the right kind of spiritual growth. Just as God had something that he wanted Job to learn, God has something that he wants us to learn. Just as God had a message for Job, God has a message for you and for me. Now I want you to know that we don't have to deal with the first one here and those three things I gave you because there was no sin involved in this. We know that. I mean, if you look and go back and break it down here, you'll find there that the first time, the first disaster in chapter 1 when he loses all his physical things and his family, look at his response. Because God set the limits. Because this was something that God had for Job to learn. God help us to learn it today. And the thing that just bothers me, I'm going to say it one more time, is God found him worthy. God said, I trust him. You want to put Job through it? You go ahead. You know what? I don't care what you say about him, what you do to him. I don't care how you lie about him. I don't care how you manipulate the circumstances against him. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you try to do to him. You know what I know about my man Job? At the end of the day, after all you've done to him, tried to do to him, after you maligned him and destroyed him and did everything in the world to try to ruin him, my man will still be standing. Oh, I love Job. Just wish I could be like him. Now here's the key to all of this. And boy, it's a great truth. God had something that he wants Job to learn. God had some message that he wanted Job to have. And I might say on the same token, my friend, as we go through life, now that we better understand the concept of prayer and how it fits in, and now we understand the will of God and the purpose of God, I not want to say to you that, that, that the reason why some of you are probably not farther along spiritually than you are is because you are not willing to grow through the adversity that you have to go through to get the right kind of spiritual growth. Just as God had something that he wanted Job to learn, God has something that he wants us to learn. Just as God had a message for Job, God has a message for you and for me. Now I want you to know that we don't have to deal with the first one here and those three things I gave you because there was no sin involved in this. We know that. I mean, if you look and go back and break it down here, you'll find there that the first time, the first disaster in chapter 1, when he loses all his physical things and his family, look at his response in chapter 1, verse 20 and 22. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped God, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. There ain't no sin there. Boy, he come through that with flying colors. After he lost all that he lost. I wonder if we would just lose half of that, where we would be doing. Then on the second disaster, look at chapter 2, verse 9. There's his lovely little help meet. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still 
retain thine integrity? Cast God nigh. Can't you just see her doing it? But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall not we receive good at the hand of God? And shall not we receive evil? Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's as close as you're going to get to Romans 8, 28 in the Old Testament right there. You know what amazes me about that, what he said? Now, I know he's lost everything. I know he's in terrible agony. And he's sitting on an ash heap. You do understand the scenario. He's got boils. You ever have a boil, one boil? If you ever have a boil in a certain part of your extremity, you can't sit down. If you have them on your elbow, you, you can't, every time you touch it, it gets big, it gets yellow, it gets, it gets a head on it. And then you know what the obvious thing happened, don't you? It becomes a little volcano. But they're sore. You can't touch them. Imagine having them from the sole of your feet to the crown of your head. He had boils all over his body and the pus is oozing so bad and they're busting. He's sitting on an ash heap with a piece of broken pottery scraping off the boils and the pus of his body. And when he answers his wife after his, God has done everything that he's done, it doesn't even look like he raises his voice. That is said in an even strain. There's no exclamation marks in it. There's no underlining it. It isn't like, woman, can't you see I'm going through something? God's going to give it to me, so we're going to get through it. He talks in the same even voice that he talks all the way through this. You know why? He had no Bible. He had no church. had no Holy Spirit, but he had God. And God's enough. And I want to tell you what you ought to prepare your life for. Maybe you'll never get there. Maybe you'll never get there. But I'll tell you out of how you ought to prepare your life. I don't care where you're at. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how much time you've got left. I don't care if you're just a young Christian, a medium Christian, or you're well done. I don't care. It does, I don't care what classification you're in. You ought to be preparing yourself that God can put you someplace where you are all by yourself. Someplace where you have nobody you can call. Someplace you are where you can't get a hold of anybody. Nobody can help you. And you have to stand or fall on your relationship with God. I'd like to see God put somebody in a situation where you didn't have a Bible because you couldn't get one. I'd like to see God put you in a situation where you couldn't, you had, you had no, nothing you could do on your own. That you, you, I'd like to see you in a situation where everything that was falling down around you and to see if you could stand for God. You see, there may not be a time in this world where you have what you're holding in your hand right now. There may come a time when that's taken from you. It may come a time where that, you don't have that anymore. And there may find yourself in a scenario where you find yourself someplace where they won't let you have it or you can't get it. That's why the Bible says, Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. It ain't any good to have it there if you don't have it here. I told a Catholic one time, I said, why? Well, you know what? The difference between, I don't want to get into Mary and Saint this and Saint that. I was going to tell you the biggest difference between your religion and mine, what I got. Somebody can steal yours. Nobody can steal mine. Why? Somebody steals, sneaks into your church and burns it down, you got no place to go. Somebody goes in and steals your candles and beads, you can't even pray. Somebody goes in and steals your hymnal, you don't even know what to sing. Somebody steals your Bible, you know what? You, you're, you're lost. 
Well, somebody could go in in one night's time, take your whole religion off and truck it off to California someplace, and you'd show up and you'd be lost without it. He said, yours is the same way. I said, no, it isn't. You can't burn down my church. I'm the church. I said, somebody could kill your priest. You can't get mine. He's up there. <laughs> oh, as far as my candles and beads, take them. I don't need them anyhow. You can't take my Bible. That word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. It's not about what you have in your hand today. It's what you put from that in your heart today. That determines how you stand. And Job had none of those things. Why? Why is not God enough for you and me? Why is not God enough for you and me? I don't understand that. God had a message for Job. Sometimes in life, now that we understand this great story better, we also understand about prayer. We also understand now how that all things that work together for good, that them that love God, that them that are called according to His purpose. Now we understand the model. A one whole book that is devoted to you and me going through the adversity of life. And you know what we've learned? We've learned some great lessons. But the greatest lesson ought to be God is enough. And then the next thing you learn, that God had a message for Job. He's got a message for you and me. What He did in Job is He used the devil as a delivery boy for the message. The message came from God. The devil was a delivery boy that God used to get the message to him. What we do is we get, because we have no relationship with God, we don't understand prayer, we have so many misconceptions, we get so scared of the delivery boy, we never get the message. Now how do you pray through something like this? How do you pray through something like this? When something befalls you, putting all the equations together, putting all of the things together, understanding God's purpose, understanding God's will, understanding there's three, four different kinds of prayer. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Now, if it's sin, and you know it's sin, get it right. Get a plan, get moving again. My best advice. Problems cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that caused them. I'm going to say that again because you probably want to write that down because it's worth a lot of money. Problems cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created those problems. You've got to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and get to another level to solve them problems. But you want a plan if it's sin? Get honest with yourself. Realize that God has a plan and a purpose and you are wasting your time doing life the way you're doing it. There's no purpose. There's no plan. There's no will of God. It's just you're doing what you want to do. Maybe you're mad at God. Maybe you're indifferent to God. Maybe you're not even saved. I don't know what your deal is. But the bottom line is you need to get a perspective. God's got a plan for you and it only gets fulfilled as God's will for you. If it's sin, get it right, get a plan, and get moving again. Now, if it's in the second or the third one, here's what you pray. Something along this. This is not a canned prayer. This is not like in Matthew where you find the Lord's Prayer. Everybody. This is not the prayer for you. This is how I would pray. Not that I'm any prayer warrior, but this is, this is in my own stupidity. 
understanding a little bit that I do understand. This is how I pray. And now, this is what I call my combo prayer. Well, you understand that. You go to, this afternoon, you're going to go to eat, and if you're anything, you know, you go through a drive through like McDonald's, and they, 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 you can, they do it two or three ways. You can go through there, and, and they'll tell you all the time, I want two cheeseburgers, I want a large fry, and I want a Coke. And they'll say, sir, you can have that in a combo for, for less money. All right, give me the combo. You understand combo, don't you? You get a Big Mac, chicken fries, and all those things. Right? You know what? I don't take... I, I eat at fast food, but I don't allow my kids or grandkids to eat at fast food. I think fast foods are very deceptive. And I think the devil uses fast foods to destroy the credibility of you with your child. No, I'm telling you. Because you play right into that. You can do whatever you want to do. You raise your kids the way you want. I made the mistake, and that's my kids. I don't take my grandkids there. When they get old enough, they're going to eat places that are true places to eat, not places that deceive them. You know, it's like Christmas. You know, you tell your kids there's Santa Claus and they grow up one day and figure you're a liar because there's no Santa Claus. We're going to have, an, we'll probably at Easter time, we'll have an Easter bunny up here. But we do it right, see? When we talk about kids, Santa Claus coming down the chimney, we talk about setting claymores and Constantino wire to get him when he comes down. We'll have Rose dressed up in her bunny suit and then two or three of you guys with 12 gauge will make her run in the parking lot and all the kids will watch and we'll shoot that rabbit and then eat it for supper. That's how we're going to do it. We do it, but we keep it honest. I'll tell you, you make a tragic mistake. I was watching, I was in there the other day and it just hit me. God showed it to me. I mean, God shows me things. I see things from God. I see things from God. I stand there in line, McDonald's. Mom and two little kids there, sweet kids. Kids are obviously going to go die and go to hell because mom's playing into the deception. Lying to her kids. Stood down there and watched that thing, and mom says, kid says, what do you want? She says, he says, I'd like some, and they told the mom, and mom says, I'd like, I'd like chicken, I'd like two orders of chicken fingers. Struck me. Chickens don't have fingers. They have bills, they have combs, they have feathers, they have feet. They have no fingers. Allowing your child to grow up in this world under the delusion that chickens have fingers. And they can freely at any point in their life walk into a restaurant and say, I like an order of chicken fingers. And everybody in the restaurant, on the sign, everywhere, is under the same deception. I wanted to reach over to that lady and say, ma'am, there's things in life that you need to get straightened out on. If I was president, I would change some things. Ma'am, I have two dogs at home and they are called Labrador's Retrievers. I tell them every day, you're not a lab, you're not from Labrador, you're from Newfoundland. There are no such things as Labrador, they're from Newfoundland. I drive, to, I, I don't understand this. Why do, you, why do you park in a driveway and drive on a parkway? The whole world's out to deceive you. The whole world. They're not French fries. They never were made in France. You don't even know where they were made. And chickens don't have fingers. You say, what did that have to do with anything? It's a combo deal. I'm talking to you here. 
Here's my combo prayer. Oh, you so pious people. You know what? You're going to go through the drive-thru and you're going to see chicken wingers and a lady's going to be on the chicken fingers. <laughs> well, that's a combo. Fingers and wings. Fingers and wings. Chicken finger wingers. Chicken finger fingers. Whatever the case may be. It's a combo. It's a combo. And, and, and you're going to go through and you're going to crack up. And she's going to say, ma'am, can I help you? And all she's going to hear is this cackling on the other end of the deal. How do you pray through something like this? How do you pray through what Job went through? When you find yourself in the scenario like Job was, what do you say? You understand now God's plan, God's purpose, God's will. Here's what I'd say. I've said it many, many times. Not the model prayer. Everybody's prayer has to be between you and God. But the attitude, Lord, I don't know why I'm in this. Lord, I've looked in my heart and looked in my life, and I can't find any sin. But, Lord, I'm so stupid. And Lord, if I'm missing something, if there's something here in my life that I've missed or I've willingly just glossed over from your word, please, Lord, show me what that is. But Lord, this is tough. And Lord, I want to tell you, my flesh, my flesh wants me to ask you to take this off of me. I I want to pray, Lord, Lord, take this away. Get me out of this, Lord. But Lord, I know that you have a plan here. There's a purpose for all of this. And Lord, I don't, I don't ask you to take it away. Even though in my flesh I want it to, I know, I'm, I know beyond that, and I don't ask you to take it away. Lord, I don't even ask you to help me to know why. But Lord, just let me give you the honor and glory out of this. Lord, don't let me fall. Don't let me fail. Don't let whatever you're trying to do through this. Take me out of it, Lord. If you get more honor and glory out of my, out of my infirmity or my, even my death, Lord, just let me give you the honor and glory. And if, somebody, if it's something for me, Lord, that you've got me to learn, I'm going to grow through, then God, give me the grace to see it. Don't let me be so focused on myself and my pain or what I've lost or this or that. Help me to see it and understand to learn from it. And Lord, if it's somebody else, if it's something else, that somebody else that needs something for me, somebody else that needs to help, help me to stay faithful, that I don't quit, that I can, I can go all the way to the end of this, that your will can be accomplished and your purpose. And Lord, as bad as it hurts, and Lord, it's like my heart's going to fall out. It's like I can't go on another step. And Lord, I, everything I do, everything I think, it just, I just, it just overwhelms me. And Lord, as, as bad as it hurts, as weak as I am, Lord, give me the strength to trust you through this. God, help me to have the grace to fulfill your will. And help me pull tight into where you're at. And help it to be your will, Lord, and not my will. And Lord, if there's anything in this that is my will, Lord, take it out. And put your will. And if anything that I've said, anything that I've asked supersedes over what you're going to do, Lord, just count it to my own stupidity. And Lord, thy will be done in everything that you do. That's giving God the green light, you see. That's not asking God to fix it. It's a combination of all four of them prayers. It's a picture of intercessory. It's a picture of giving God the thanks. It's a picture of the prayer that David had, just talking with God. And it's also a picture of of God if there's somebody else supplementing somebody else for what they need, an intercessory for what somebody else needs. In Job chapter 13, verse 15, when he's at the highest point of his agony, and I can't even imagine him being there, but oh, it would be my prayer, it would be my life, it would be what I would think that every child of God would want to say, I wish in my scenario I could be what Job was and say what Job said in Job chapter 13, verse 15. 
when his friends are down on him, when his wife is down on him, when he's lost everything that he have, and the agony of his disease for these seven days has been absolutely horrendous. He says in verse 15, one of the greatest verses anywhere in the Bible, one of the greatest principles you'll ever find. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. You know what he's saying? He says, I don't care if he kills me. I'm not going to turn my back on my God because I know that God is enough to get me through this. You're at your best with God when our lives is at its worst. We don't know that. American Christianity would have a hard time to think of that. I talked last week about David Ring. Want to see what I mean? You be your own judge. I talked last week about one of the greatest examples you ever find in life in David Ring. I told you to go home and Google him up on your Google search. And there's a video, several videos of who he is, what he is, shows you there. And I bet you half of you never even thought about it once you left last week. Man said one time, great ships were not built to set in dry dock. Great ships were not built to set in harbors. But rather, great ships were built to sail the seas, to weather the storms, to get from port to port. When God saved you, he made you a great vessel. And he didn't design that vessel to sit at dock. He didn't design that vessel to sit in a dry dock someplace. He designed that vessel to sail the rough seas of this world, to always stay afloat, and to go to the port of call where God has called you to go. That in Job's like like ours, Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Someday it comes to an end. You know, I read something one time while back, back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. It's a great story. And it's a story about the Syrians. And Israel's going up against them in battle. And it's a great principle, and it's one you ought to write down, and it's a great counseling principle. It's a great principle for life. They're making fun, and they said they got Israel down in a valley. Doctrinally, it's a valley of Armageddon, but put a practical sense. They got them down in a valley. And they said to the nation of Israel, you know how we know we're going to whip you? You know how we know that we're going to whip you today and beat you? Because your God is the God of the hills. Your God is not the God of the valleys. You know what the Lord told Israel? You go ahead and fight them. They're going to learn a great lesson today. They're going to learn not only am I a God of the hills, but I'm a God of the valleys. But the great lesson is this. Their victory was in the valleys. And my point to you is this. Your victory will never be when you're on the hill. Your true victory will always be when you're in the valley. You don't need God when you're on the hill. You need God in the valley. And claiming you got a great victory when you're on top of everything. Giving thanks for all things and claiming a great victory when you're in the valley. That's something. That's something. Well, Job's end came, as it always will. Somebody said one time, this too shall pass. And in Job chapter 42, verse 10, the Lord turned the captivity of Job Bible says in verse 10 that he gets double back everything that he lost. 
Bible says in Job chapter 42, verse 12, that the, that the, that the, God, that the Lord, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. And you know what? I guess that's really the answer to all this. That's probably the great pulling all together key to everything we've talked about in the last four or five weeks. The ending of your life being better than when you started it. The ending of our walk with God better than when we started walking with God. The process of growing through our adversities. Learning the lessons that Job learned, receiving the message that God has for us, understanding the great truth that God is enough, and understanding that the greatest mark that you can ever have as a child of God is not how much do you know about the Bible, not how many people did you win to Christ, not anything other than does God have the freedom in your life to pick you up and put you down in any scenario knowing that you will stand alone for Him when you have nothing but Him. That's the great concept. That's the great concept. In Job's case, it wasn't sin that brought his name up. It was God brought Job's name up because he brought it through it all because Job was going to be better when he was through it than he was before he went in it. And yet at the same time, how can I miss this? How can I miss the fact that Job's suffering and my suffering is through the will of God and the purpose of God, and goes back to Calvary's death on the cross of Christ. And how can I miss that in Job chapter 30, and Job chapter 16, and many places in Job where his adversity mirrors perfectly Christ's death on the cross. You know how many characters there are in the Bible? You know how many stories? How many stories of victories? How many stories of defeats? How many men and women who lived great victorious lives, who went down in flaming defeat, who struggled with everything that we struggle? I, I've often wondered, I've often wondered if God would ever write a third testament. You know, we got the first testament, Old Testament, the New Testament. I often wondered if God ever in the future, and I, He probably won't, but I often wondered if God ever wrote a book, a Bible, about the time that we're living, because it ends in Acts chapter 20. I've often wondered if God ever wrote a Bible, another addendum to the Bible, another testament, so to speak, of the New Testament church. That like in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he went down and he picked the names of people and told stories and told everything in there that just the way that he wanted it to get there. I wonder if what story he would tell about me. I wonder what story he would tell about you. Would you and I fit into a story of great victory or great defeat? Will we just be one of those little unknown people in the Bible that never stuck their neck out for anything or would be somebody that took a chance for God and did exactly what God wanted to do? You see, we know it wasn't sin. We know it wasn't sin. God brought Job through it because, well, the second thing is he had something for Job. But God also brought him through it for the third thing. It was for somebody else. And ladies and gentlemen, not only did he go through it for himself that he learned something, he went through it for somebody else to learn something, and that somebody else is you and me. God put him through what he went through so you and I could understand one great central truth, ladies and gentlemen, and it's what I leave you with. God is enough. Your relationship with God should be enough. And the victory that we have with God will never be on the hills. The victory only lies in the valleys. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Our Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. Now, we thank you, Lord, as we come to an end of this great study. 
And we look at all of the aspects of prayer that we've seen and try to pull them all together. We find it in a great defining book, a book that really answers all of the questions. And we should have so much information for now, Lord, that we can, we can move forward in what we need to do, no matter wherever we're at. Well, Lord, help these young men and young ladies to understand the great truth that God is enough. And the reason why we struggle with where we struggle with, and the reason why that we have the problems we have, and the reason why even today in this room we have the attitudes that we think we so cleverly mask. The real bottom line is God is not enough. And help us to get to the point. Help me to train these people to be a, a people that can, God can put anywhere. God never let our insincerity or our, our, our motive for loving you be thrown in your face when a devil brings our name up. God, help us. Help us to always stand strong for the things that you have us to stand for, especially in these last days. Help us not to falter. Help us not to be weak. Help us to get self out of the way and help us to be everything that God wants us to be. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. If you're dismissed, please take time. If you want to sign up for the Easter egg thing back there, there's a paperback.